Um, you can tell it's Friday morning and it's still snowing and it feels better to just be inside and hunker down. But here I am in the office today uh, to talk to you, uh, talk you through what God's word has to say about, oh, one choosing to be spiritual, but not religious, spiritual, but not religious. Now, last time we talked about um, basically the inspiration for me thinking about talking about this was was two things was one. Netflix having a show called Surviving Death uh, that was fairly popular and be, had become uh, pretty well known, um, was getting some uh, some attention. And I watched through the show and I could see that primarily the ideas that were being shared on there were very much uh, in line with this idea of being spiritual but not religious, um, but very much open to tapping into spiritual matters even if people couldn't explain exactly how it all worked. And then the second thing was my own experience walking the streets of New York City, seeking to minister to people there and finding that uh, people that are uh, in extremely intelligent, uh, sort of at the top of their fields and whatever they work in, uh, are not uh, sort of hardened atheists or what you might expect from people that live um, you know, in, that have been highly educated and if you know, live in a uh, urban environment like New York City. But in fact, most of them were spiritual and open to all sorts of supernatural ideas. The, and as a matter of fact, most of the people that I came across were people that had stories about some uh, interaction with something they would describe as supernatural in their life. And so, so I've, I've been thinking about this for a while because the reality is there's not a whole lot of resources in the Christian church that deal with this category of people that are open to spirituality but not really organized religion. And yet, in in my view, I think this is going to be the fastest growing view in America for the foreseeable future. That that explains to me why you see this incredible rise of the category in the Pew Research studies of nuns. It's not that they're atheists. It's that they're just not connected to an organized religion. Nevertheless, they are still spiritual. Maybe the prime example of somebody that would be like this, although he would certainly call himself an atheist, is the popular podcaster and, uh, and writer Sam Harris. Uh, Sam Harris is, uh, has written a whole book on meditation and on transcendence and on sort of connecting with with something deeper than material than the material realm and yet he would deny in the strongest possible terms that any uh, any god exists out there and yet what does that show you it shows you that he's longing for and acknowledges there's something deeper than just the things that we can sense with our our five senses so now what has the church's response tended to be towards those that might use the phrase, I'm spiritual, but not religious? Well, uh, sad to say, I think the church's response, especially from uh, any given pulpit, is to sort of dismiss it with mockery. Maybe make a joke, you know, oh, you don't like organized religion? Well, how about disorganized religion? Ha, 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 you know, and... Um, and that doesn't help at all. That actually doesn't go anywhere in actually engaging our neighbors where they're at and seeking to actual, actually have a conversation with them. Because what I'm convinced this shows is that the vast majority of our neighbors out there that are in this category actually do hunger for something deeper. And we have it. We have something deeper, someone deeper to offer them 
but they're certainly not going to really feel like listening to what we have to say if our response to their um, to their point of view is to just mock it and uh, and dismiss it. And so I want to engage with it. A uh, few things about I think this particular point of view um, that I I found anyway were common uh, strands of people that would say they're into spirituality, uh, but not religion. First thing, uh, often there is a deep, deep aversion to exclusivity. In other words, there is an aversion to any claims to having capital T truth, the truth. Now, I think this is very understandable. Obviously, as a Christian, and especially as a pastor, I don't agree that you can't find the truth. We believe that the truth is, in fact, the person of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, is it understandable to me that someone is skeptical of anyone who claims to have the truth? Well, sure. I mean, you know, we have the internet available to us that is sending us a thousand and one different messages claiming to be the, the truth every day. And yet, as we've seen in our political process and other uh, places in our world, it's very hard sometimes to ascertain the truth from fiction. There's a reason that fake news has become such a common phrase used, especially in the last five or six years, because it's all too easy to fall for something that may look true, but isn't true. And so with these folks, there is an aversion to any claims to having the truth. The second thing, I, I think typically there is a rejection or at least a deep questioning of what would be uh, thought of as historic moral norms, especially when it comes to sexuality and gender. Um, of course, the traditional perspective on sexuality is that uh, that males are supposed to be with females and females are supposed to be with males. And there's a complementarity to that based on uh, one's biology. That has been, for the most part, uh, something pretty common to almost all cultures. Yes, there's been exceptions. And I could go into that, especially when we look at the Roman world and we see that there's all sorts of deviances from that norm. But nevertheless, it still has been the norm. Now, it doesn't mean that that meant that everybody always agreed about monogamy or about staying with just one person for life. But nevertheless, there was an agreement, even if one wasn't a Christian, that males were supposed to be with females sexually and vice versa. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to tell you, I'm not telling you any tales out of school, that in the Western world, more and more, the common view is that that is rejected. That historic moral norm is absolutely rejected to the point where if one holds it, um, it's almost like being kind of anathema in our modern world. I can remember many times the first question that I would get when I'd tell somebody I was a pastor in Manhattan was, are you an affirming church? And no matter how I tried to answer it, no matter how I tried to dialogue about it, it didn't matter if I wasn't, if in the final analysis, our church wasn't affirming, and that meaning of same-sex marriage, then we were immediately dismissed. Immediately. Didn't matter what else we said. Didn't matter what other truth claims we made. Didn't matter whatever, what other ways we may have been appealing to a person. Immediately dismissed. And not just dismissed as difference of opinion, but actually as immoral and regressive. 
The same thing is true when it comes to historic ideas about gender. The idea that one's biology is determinative of gender, which is, again, something that has uh, typically been understood as true, that is no longer in the Western world assumed to be true. From Western Europe to the United States, there is all sorts of questioning about whether one's biology determines gender. And more and more, the answer coming out of academia and elite institutions is that biology has nothing to do with one's gender, but indeed gender is determined by how one experiences their own body and their own feelings about their body. And therefore you see an incredible rise in those who are claiming to be either categorized as queer or transgender today uh, that are in transition. That is just the reality. Now, I could go on about other examples of things that we've sort of taken for granted as moral norms within Western culture, but those are the two big ones that I think you see all the time. And definitely with this spiritual but not religious crowd, there is a deep, deep aversion to any sort of claim of moral normality when it comes to these things. Third thing, there's a real disillusion with institutions. And that covers just about all the institutions. There is a whole lot of suspicion and skepticism about the things that people used to look to for truth and for guidance, whether it be government, whether it be uh, schools, whether it be the church. It really, even in, in urban environments, I mean, I, I should say, maybe the one last institution that people generally trust in Western society is our military. But even there, uh, especially the more urban you get, the more skepticism you have even of that as being a good institution. Institutions are completely um, held with suspicion and, um, and folks, we have to acknowledge, again, it's very, very understandable. Very understandable. When it comes to government, we see the lies, we see the imperfections, we see that there's a show being performed for us, but the reality is much more sinister and dark. When it comes to the church, we hear great moral claims about how we should be this, that, or the other thing, but then we hear at the same time people that we have seen as great leaders within the church turning out to be uh, sexual deviants or drug addicts or any number of things that they condemned loudly from their pulpits. And on and on it goes. We see the reasons why. And so again, we understand why our, P our friends that would say they're spiritual but not religious are skeptical. We understand it. It doesn't mean that we agree with it all, but we certainly understand it. If, fourth thing, and here's a positive. There is a lot of openness to talking about the supernatural. Folks, there's a lot of I don't know in this worldview. There's a lot of, I'm not really sure, and so I'm open to hearing your story. I'm open to hearing what happened to you. And chances are, again, they probably have had something that's happened to them. There's an openness to that. And that means that we have a big entryway for Jesus. Because they're open to the possibility that Jesus might be more than a mere man, that he might be something different than just what we see on the streets here. Most people agree that Jesus was a historical figure, and so you don't have to spend a whole lot of time proving that point. The vast majority agree that he was a historical figure. The question is, who was he and what did he do? 
And so we have a big entryway for Jesus because they're open to supernatural things. But we also have a big entryway for Jesus, I would say, because just as they are skeptical of the corruption of institutions and skeptical of those who claim to be the arbiters of truth, well, when we think about what the Gospels present to us about Jesus, Jesus presents to us some of the very same characteristics. When he shows up on the scene, no matter where he's at, whether in Galilee or Jerusalem, it is in fact the religious institutions and the governing institutions that hate him the most. It is the people that have been in charge, the supposed arbiters of truth that reject him. And so there's an entry to find common ground there where we can say, you know, I understand why you might be skeptical. And frankly, uh, Jesus was pretty skeptical of those who claim to be in authority and know all the truth as well. And he challenged that. And suddenly Jesus is no longer defined by their picture uh, on uh, what they've seen on TV of the church or what they've experienced in the church as a kid. But Jesus is something different. Jesus is something that's more connected to at least some aspects of where they're at. So let me wrap this up today. This is obviously not a devotion. This is more me rambling about something I've been processing. So take it for what it's worth. Hopefully it's helpful to you. I have a feeling many of you have people like this in your life. So maybe it will be of use to you. Um, how do we approach our friends and neighbors in this place? How do we seek to engage people? Well, first of all, I would say be kind and compassionate and do everything you can to make sure you don't come off as condescending in any way whatsoever. And I can't emphasize this enough. Oftentimes when we're in the place of trying to defend the faith, which is something that the apostle Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter 3 chapter or 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15. Oftentimes we come off as almost arrogant or condescending in our tone as if it's like, oh yeah, this is obvious. It's so logical that Jesus is the way. I mean, you know, I've got this proof and that proof. Well, that, that is just not going to fly. Instead, think in terms of conversational. Remember, Peter's command when he talks about defending the faith in that very passage is to make sure we're gentle and lowly when we approach people, that we're kind and compassionate. Not that we come with all the answers or pretend that we know all the things. So that's the first thing. Be kind and compassionate. Second, I, I would say begin with a posture of listening and asking questions. Try to find out why a more, quote, spiritual position is more favorable to them than an organized religious point of view. And then when they do share their feelings about that, be prepared to acknowledge the church's many shortcomings. It's okay to do that. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be a session where you're just, you know, dumping on the church the whole time. But listen, the church is not without sin. The church has got a lot, got a lot of issues throughout its history. And it's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to say, yeah, the church is an imperfect institution. As a matter of fact, everybody who fills the pews is an imperfect person. And frankly, that's why we're there, because we all know we need grace. We all know we need forgiveness. The third thing, seek to find common ground that can be affirmed while at the same time pointing out differences with Christianity in a gracious tone. In other words, instead of taking the tack of repent or you know turn or burn, um, seek to find the issues where there can be some broad agreement. 
if the person says, I believe there's a God somewhere or some kind of spirit being, well, then you can say, well, I, I believe that there's a God too. Um, but what Christianity teaches is that that God is, is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And, and so that might be the difference between what you, know, you believe and what, what we believe. Um, and, and just be ready to sort of flesh out for them what it is they think is true from false so that you have a good idea of how to interact with these folks. Um, big thing that I found, um, be prepared to defend sin as a concept. Let me say that again. Be prepared to defend the idea of sin as a concept. Because I think for a lot of people in this category, just the very word sin is conjures up uh, all sorts of puritanical sort of witch hunting type images in their mind. And so we need to be able to talk about what sin is and distinguish it from what they're thinking. Um, instead of talking about individual sins, it might almost be good to just talk about the very concept of being flawed, being imperfect. Most people will acknowledge that reality about themselves and certainly about the world, that, that even as we are uh, capable of great things because we're created in the image of God, at the same time, it's no secret that we're capable of tremendously awful things. And that is what when that is what we're talking about when we're getting to this concept of being fallen or being a, a sinner. All right. And the last thing, um, be ready to point out what makes Jesus unique. And there's a number of ways that one can do that. Uh, you could talk about the historical reliability of the Gospels, which they are indeed historically reliable accounts. I mean, they're written so soon after the events that it would be really hard for them to be a forgery. Uh, you can talk about uh, the difference between what Christianity actually teaches as opposed to every other religious view, which is that uh, it, the emphasis is not on what you do, but on what God does in his grace for you. That really is a remarkable difference. And even with those who are spiritual but not religious, scratch beneath the surface and you're going to find that they have adopted just some new means of trying to scrape their way to enlightenment or to heaven or whatever they call it. But rest assured, it's always going to depend on what they do, whether they meditate enough, whether they do yoga enough, whether they do this, that, or the other thing. It's always going to be a man-made works system. Emphasize that Christianity instead teaches the opposite of God coming down to us. And then I would also focus on the fact that since everyone is created in the image of God, God longs to save everyone, no matter how flawed they are. So that's, that's literally, I'm sorry, I am just spitballing here. I am thinking off the top of my head based on my own experiences. Um, but I just feel like this is a category of people, this is a group of people that is larger and larger, growing and growing, and that the church is not quite ready to engage with yet, and we need to be, and so I'm just getting the conversation started. I don't know where it goes from here, but I hope that's helpful to you. Um, be sure to join us on Sunday.